1 Thessalonians. I invite you to turn there in your Bibles. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And I'm going to read verses 13 through 16 as we begin today. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, <clears throat> verses 13 through 16. This is the word of our Lord. 1 Thessalonians 2, 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always, to fill up the measure of their sins. But, the, but wrath has come upon them at last. Heavenly Father, we pray you would, by your spirit, through your word, purify and cleanse our hearts. Help us hear what you are saying to us this morning. Thank you for the gift of your word. Help us focus, and may your spirit prod us in the areas in our life where we need to be encouraged and where we need to be challenged as well, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Some years ago, my wife and I went to a couple's cooking class. Some of you have gone. Uh, date night, other couples show up, and there's a chef there who graduated from chef school, and he gives you a bunch of recipes, and you divide it among the couples that are there. And then if you need help, you can call him over, and he tells you, he gives you technique, tells you how to do things, but in the end, you all share what you made, and if someone made the salad, someone made the, the main dish, other people made different parts, and then you eat together. And it was a fun time, and while we were there, the chef told us about an old cooking tradition which says that a master chef's toque, or the tall hat they wear, has 100 folds in it which represent the 100 ways he knows or should know how to cook an egg. So the hat is a visual representation of everything that he's learned. And I looked it up this week and found out that food historians don't really know where or when that idea originated but it continues to be a popular belief. A master chef is to know at least 100 ways to prepare an egg. And we might be impressed to hear that. We might be impressed with someone who has that level of cooking knowledge. But we also know that you don't have to know a lot about food to enjoy it. There's a difference between the knowledge of food and the consumption of food. You can know a lot about food and not eat it, and you can know very little about food and still enjoy it. We need to think about that, not just from a physical standpoint, but also from a spiritual standpoint. Physically speaking, you can know all the recipes in the world, you can know all there is to know about food, but if you don't eat, you're gonna starve. And spiritually, the same is true regarding how we nourish our own souls. How do we feed our souls? What has God given us for spiritual nourishment? That's his word. Our souls need to be constantly nourished. Having knowledge about the Bible is good. That's important. 
It's a good foundation for the Christian life. But we don't want to confuse Bible knowledge with Bible intake. You can't rely simply on what you know. You have to feed on the word of God regularly. And so for us that means if the only Bible intake we get is on Sunday mornings when we happen to come to church, we're going to go through life spiritually weak and spiritually malnourished. If I had to guess, I would say most of us, like me and my family, eat more than three times a day. And so it makes you wonder what would happen if you only ate once a week. You would lose weight in an unhealthy way. But more than that, you would have no energy. You wouldn't have the ability to fulfill the things that God has called you to do as a husband or a dad or a father or a mother. The same thing can happen in our, in our spiritual lives if we stop feeding regularly on the word of God. This is what God has given us to feed our souls. There is, we could say, spiritual junk food and there is spiritual food. This is how God's spirit works in us and through us. Last week, we ended the message at the end of verse 13. Just look at it one more time with us because it speaks of the power of God's word. He praises the church because when they heard the word of God, they accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. And then Paul says at the end of verse 13, the word of God which is at work in you believers. We reminded ourselves that God's power is seen in through the word in bringing people to salvation and in their sanctification. The spirit of God works through his word to bring sinners to faith and to bring Christians to maturity. And when I pointed out last, I want you to note one more time that when Paul references the word of God working, he's not speaking in the past tense. He, he speaks about it as an ongoing reality. The word of God is at work continually, presently. It is at work in you believers. That's the work of sanctification. As Christians, we have to remember that the driving force in our lives is not coffee, it's the spirit of God. And the spirit of God is gonna work through his word. The spirit of Christ that dwells within us works through his word and we need to be taking that in. Jesus in John 17, as he's praying for his disciples, says, Lord, Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So just like we need food physically to grow, we need spiritual food and that is the word of God. And the Bible, in, in a lot of passages, speaks of itself as food. That should sound familiar. Psalm 19, uh, David, I think it's David there, he says, your word is sweeter to me than honey. First uh, Peter 2.2 2 says this, like newborn babes long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. This is our nourishment Speaking of his teaching to them, Paul said to the Corinthians, I fed you with milk. And, and he contrasted that with solid food, which he said, that comes next. That's once there are signs of maturity and growth, then there's solid food. And the author of Hebrews says the same thing in chapter five. He says, the word of God is milk for the young and it is solid food for the mature. This is what our soul needs. Whatever the state of your soul whether you're happy, whether you feel like you're doing well, whether you're fatigued, whether you're tired, what your soul needs is to hear and receive and then live out the word of God. 
And we might say amen when we hear that, but practically th- this is where it becomes difficult because you come home or from somewhere or you're in your home and you have your kids and you're tired and you just say, I just need something. I just need a nicer meal to watch TV or, I don't know, I think the books are still out. There used to be books called Chicken Soup for the Soul. And it gives the idea that the best thing your soul can need is funny stories and, and sentimental anecdotes. What our souls truly need is the word of God. If you're taking in God's word regularly and you're growing spiritually, there's gonna have an, you're gonna see an effect in your life and that effect is called sanctification. You, you look and you think more like Jesus Christ You're going to see in your life the fruit of the Spirit. That's what he's producing. And that's not just a hope. That's a guarantee. God has said that. He's going to work in the lives of all those who trust him and all who receive the word of God. One key attribute that God's word will produce in the life of a true believer is perseverance, endurance. We need it. Back in 2008, when uh, the Olympics were in Beijing, I remember we were told that the American swimmer, Michael Phelps, because they would, you know, they talked about the Olympic Village and all that they do, he would consume in the morning, or in, I think in the course of a day, 12,000 calories. We're not supposed to eat 12,000 calories, you and I. Uh, the average adults are supposed to have 2,000 calories. But he was an Olympic swimmer in multiple events. He needed the calories, and, and we don't. We obviously usually shouldn't be eating that much. But sometimes we can take that approach to spiritual ministry, spiritual life. Well, you know, I know the Bible is good. I know it should be my life, but, but I'm not a missionary. I'm not a pastor. I'm not in seminary. Why do I need that much of God's word in my life? The answer is because you need perseverance. You need endurance. You may not think you need it, but you need it. I want to show you in the passage we're looking at today why you need it. Beginning in verse 14, Paul describes a specific manifestation of God's power through his word in the Thessalonians. Look at it with me, chapter 2, 1 Thessalonians, verse 14. He says, for you, and that for is a a connection between verse 13. God's power is working in you. How do I know? Because you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. So the work of God's word in the Thessalonians made them like the Christians in Jerusalem. This is the mother church, we could say. You're the new Christians. You look like them. You're, you're all moving toward Jesus Christ. So in general, verse 14, when he says, you became imitators of the church, in general, that's talking about their sanctification. But Paul has a specific element in mind. He says, for you suffered the same things. And so the issue isn't that they suffered. The point is they endured in the suffering. He's speaking of their perseverance. The Thessalonian church, just like the Christians in Jerusalem, endured even in persecution. They suffered for the sake of Jesus Christ. Just like the Jewish religious leaders opposed the early church, the church in Thessalonica had its own enemies. And Paul says their suffering was basically the same. You, Thessalonians, verse 14 again, you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they, the Judeans, did 
from the Jews. We looked at some of those sufferings last week when we were in chapter 17. Remember in Thessalonica, a mob formed outside of Jason's home. Jason is only mentioned one other time in the Bible, but he's evidently a a, a man there in Thessalonica who opened his home to the Christians. He was a Christian. He received them. He received the word. Then he received the apostles. And this mob forms outside his home. They drag him out. They take him to the authorities. And they say, these men have turned the world upside down. These men preach another king, Jesus. The bulk of the opposition for the Thessalonian church came from the Greek authorities, but Paul says it really isn't different, that much different from the opposition that the church in Jerusalem faced. And why could he say that? Different city, different culture. Why is it the same opposition? Because behind it is the same spirit. It's the spirit of the world, and it's the spirit of Satan. Satan is the enemy of God. If Paul could say that the opposition from the Jews in Jerusalem was the same as the opposition from the Greeks in Thessalonica, I think it's fair to say, and the rest of the Bible proves this, that the opposition that we face today is the same. It's gonna manifest itself in different ways, but at its heart, it's the same kind of rejection, the same kind of opposition. And so because that's what we're facing, we need perseverance. And that's why we need to feed on God's word. We need to energize ourselves for the battle that is to come. We need to reorient our hearts and our minds with the truth. What exactly are we up against? What kind of opposition are you and I going to face if we're serious about serving Jesus Christ? Paul points it out in verses 15 and 16. Let me give you three descriptions of these enemies. Number one, you and I need to be ready to face a hatred for Jesus, a hatred for Jesus for Jesus. In verse 15, Paul begins to describe his opponents like this. They killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They killed the Lord Jesus. From a theological perspective, we understand that the death of Jesus was part of God's sovereign plan. God had planned this. Isaiah 53, the Lord was pleased to crush him. Jesus himself said, nobody takes my life. I lay it down. I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. I have authority to do so, and I will take it up again. But the sovereignty of God's plan does not undo the human guilt of everybody involved, particularly the religious authorities. The Jewish leaders condemned Jesus to death because they hated him. They were jealous of his ministry and they opposed his message. Paul didn't know that just historically, he knew it personally. As a faithful Jew, he would have been there at the time, maybe referred to as Saul or he had both names the whole time, but as a Pharisee, he would have been in Jerusalem during the Passover when Christ was crucified. He would have completely been with the leaders who were telling the people to begin to shout, crucify him, crucify him. And then two years later, after the church begins to grow in Jerusalem, Stephen stands up, he gives his message, and Paul, also known as Saul, was there collecting people's coats as they gathered stones to put him to death. Paul lived this hatred. After the death of Stephen, you can read this in Acts 7 and then in Acts 8, he goes out looking for Christians all throughout the Roman Empire so he could put them in jail or have them put to death. And when Paul describes his former life, he says he did so because he was a slave of Satan. He was serving the prince of the power of the air. 
You and I need to understand that this is what we're up against. Not, it doesn't mean every single unbeliever has an absolute hatred for Christ. You're not gonna see it manifest fully, but the system of the world hates Christ. They hate Jesus, and if you desire to serve Christ, you will be hated as well. Don't have this idea that maybe if I say it the right way, if I preach the gospel the right way, and if they see my kindness and my love, and they see our our unity, then the world's gonna embrace Jesus. They will not. Jesus said, by your love, they'll know you're my disciples. We'll stand out. Some will come to faith, but the system of the world will reject, and that's exactly what Jesus told his disciples. That means for us, practically, if one of your top desires, if one of your top priorities is to be loved and affirmed in the world, you're not going to be able to do that if you surrender your life to Jesus Christ. That's part of the reason Paul could tell the Corinthians, not many of you were wise, not many of you were noble. Paul said, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's what he said to Timothy. This world hates Jesus. In Mark 13, 13, Jesus told his disciples, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But, he said, the one who endures to the end will be saved. He was calling them to perseverance. Hatred is coming. It's part of serving Christ and we need endurance. There's a second reason we need to be ready. This world is marked by a hatred for Jesus. Secondly, a hostility toward man. A hostility toward man. Continuing here in verse 15, Paul says, the enemies of the gospel displease God and oppose all mankind. So this world rejects Jesus Christ and they don't seek that which pleases God. They have no desire to serve God. They only live for themselves. And one evidence of that, based on what Paul says, is they oppose all mankind. That's maybe an interesting way to think about it because it would make sense for him to say they oppose Christians. But he says all mankind. There is a distinct way where their hostility is seen because they murdered the prophets, they murdered men like Stephen and later the apostles. But Paul has a bigger principle in mind. The world isn't just set against Christians, the world is set against itself. This world is is gonna implode. there's There's a suicidal tendency in the world. And that's so important to remember because the unbelieving world looks at Christians and they talk as if, we're the bad guys. You, you believe the Bible, you teach the Bible, you're such a bigot. You're so opposed to human rights and human happiness and human love. And the truth is that they're the ones who oppose all mankind. Just like with Satan temptations of Eve, the message comes across as if it's good But Satan's purpose in the world is not the good of mankind. It's the destruction of mankind. Satan's lies don't promote human flourishing. They denigrate mankind's true purpose. We were made in the image of God to showcase his glory, to showcase his love, to showcase all, all, all of his attributes as a church. We manifest the glory of God. That was the intention for all mankind. That's not what we see in the world. 
This world works against that which is good for man. What are the loudest messages that we hear being taught to our children? It may not come off this explicit, but implicitly and sometimes explicitly, what's the message? Don't listen to external authority. You follow your heart. You be whoever it is, whoever or whatever it is that you want to be. Don't let people pull you away from what you really want. And that underlying message is what has led to the dangerous escalation of immorality and now even perversion. It's not simply tolerated, it's promoted. Top members of Biden's cabinet, openly homosexual, transsexual, that's what this world is selling, and they say this is what's good for mankind. They don't say it like this again, but the message that they give is, well, kill your babies. Mutilate your children if they need to, if you want to, if they want to be. Let lawlessness reign. And the only law they want to promote is one that promotes their agenda, not one that promotes the righteousness of God. That's where the world is going Is it really healthy? Is it really good for a child or a teenager to be told that the essence of their identity is found in their own sexual expression? No, that's not the truth. It's inaccurate and it's dangerous. The core of our identity as human beings is that we have been made in the image of God. We're here to serve God. We will find joy and satisfaction in him. We were created to serve him. Our life is hidden with Christ in God. And every other sin that this world promotes has the same kind of destructive effect on mankind. To oppose the message of Jesus is to oppose all mankind. Jesus told the Pharisees, you are the blind leading the blind. You are sons of hell going to make more disciples leading them to hell. This world is not on the side of God. This world is on the side of Satan. That's who this world follows. This system hates Jesus Christ and it's hostile to mankind. And if they hate Christ, and if they're hostile toward the God-ordained purpose of mankind, then this final characteristic shouldn't be a surprise. Number three, we need to be prepared for a hindrance to the gospel. A hindrance to the gospel. They hate Jesus, there is hostility toward man, and there's a hindrance for the gospel. This comes in verse 16, which is just an expansion of how this world opposes mankind. This would be like someone stepping in where a doctor has prescribed life-saving medicine. No, I refuse to let them have that. Verse 16, the enemies oppose mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. Silencing the truth is nothing new. Cancel culture, nothing new. In Paul's day, hindering him from speaking meant literally threatening his life and forcing him out of the city. In Stephen's case, silencing him meant stoning him to death. What does that look like for us today? Well, by God's grace and God's providence, we're not at the level of Afghanistan and North Korea and China where it is illegal to speak of Jesus Christ. But what we do see in terms of our culture is a growing pushback against the message of Jesus and against the word of God. For example, if you have a large enough fan base, if you have enough followers, and you say on Twitter that a man is a man and a woman is a woman, 
you're booted. That's already happening. People have lost their jobs over statements like that. People have lost college admission over statements like that. Simply because you promote what is obvious biologically and faithfully biblical. Even if you don't experience that severity or that type of pushback, at a minimum, because of this pushback in the culture, you're going to experience a hesitancy when you share the gospel. I don't know how they're going to take this. I'm not sure if this is the best time or the best way to talk about Jesus. You know it's not going to be accepted apart from the grace of God. And so you need to be ready for that. There will always be hindrances to the gospel, but the world's rejection of Christ is not a reason for us to be quiet. It's the reason we need courage and boldness. And still, like First Peter says, to speak with gentleness and respect. We need to be ready to face the opposition, to face the rejection, and so we need perseverance. That's why we need to consistently return to the word of God. I remember in seminary, they do senior testimonies, so some of the seniors go up and they share their life, and one of our students passed out. And it's live-streamed. And he said, you know, I've spoken before, I've been in front of places, he's preached before, and he said, I didn't have breakfast. And that can happen. You go long enough without sustaining yourself, without providing for yourself physically, you're gonna see a fall, and the same is true spiritually. We need perseverance. We need to consistently return to the word of God because of what we're up against in this world. Paul was not describing the enemies of Christ in order to scare the Thessalonian church. This is nothing new to them. They're facing it. They know it's there. But he's reminding them about it and he's saying, we're with you. We see the same thing in you that we saw in Jerusalem. He's saying it to encourage them to continue being faithful. He wants them to persevere in ministry. And one way to help persevere in ministry is to remember that no matter how glamorous, no matter how glorious this world may seem, in the end, it will face the judgment of God. So look at the final words of verse 16. Paul says this world is, 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 is hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. They oppose the gospel so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. That's an interesting phrase there. They fill up the measure of their sins. What does that mean? Well, for one, it means that nothing this world does is outside of God's sovereign plan. God's not surprised by it. And God will not ignore it. God has already, we could say, measured out how much sin this world will commit. If you could picture the, the empty measuring cup and, and, and every time they sin, they're just pouring more into there. But God's already marked out where their sin will reach. And so to us, it might seem like they're just heaping sin upon sin and there's no consequences. What they're really doing is heaping wrath upon themselves for the day where God pours it out upon them. We serve a patient God. We serve a God who sees the sin in the world, he sees the hatred, he sees the hostility, he sees the opposition, but for his own glory, he permits it. He delays his wrath. In some cases, he does so so that an individual will come to repentance for his glory. 
But our larger scale, he's delaying his wrath so that when judgment comes, he will be completely vindicated. Everyone will know that the sinner and the world is getting exactly what it deserved. might interest you to know that this phrase, filling up the measure, at least something similar to that, is used in Genesis chapter 15. When God is talking to Abraham, Abraham is in Canaan, so what, what is the promised land, and there's no nation. He doesn't even have a son yet. God is giving him his initial promise, and God says, your descendants are going to be slaves in a foreign land for 400 years, and then they'll come back, and that's what happens in the book of Exodus. One of the reasons that God gives him for the delay in, why can't we just have kids and be in the promised land now? He says, it's gonna take 400 years before they come back. He says, it's because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. We sort of pass over that. It's not a common thing, but an interesting way to speak of sin. God told Abraham, you would be gone for 400 years and then you get to come back because I need a del- some time because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. We saw a language like that even in Daniel. Centuries after God spoke to Abraham, Israel comes out of Egypt, then there's Moses, and then there's Joshua, and Joshua leads them back into the promised land, and Israel becomes God's instrument of judgment against the idolatrous and immoral nations. God said, they're sinning, yes, but they haven't filled up their measure of sin. I'm gonna let them continue in sin and then judgment will come and it'll be clear. There are times when I as a dad might see my kids doing something questionable or even wrong. And I have as a father the authority to step in and give some kind of immediate consequence. But maybe some other parents or my own wife might disagree Or maybe I'm not totally sure what the best consequence would be. It's something at a smaller level. Or even worse, maybe my own child wouldn't be convinced about the severity of his or her actions. But if I let the sin continue, and if I allow it to progress, and then it grows into something worse, visible, then there's no debate to be had. My wife The rest of the kids and that child himself or herself knows full well they deserve to be punished. They have filled up the measure of their sins. And that's what God's doing in the world. He's not condoning what's happened. He doesn't say it's okay. He's not ignoring it. He's sovereignly allowing it to continue for a time, but one day his judgment will come. We've seen that in history. We've read about it in in the end of Nahum. Israel was conquered by Assyria, the northern, and then the prophecy of of, of Nahum is they're gonna get destroyed as well. God's judgment will come. The end of verse 16. Wrath has come upon them at last. And because it says has come, which is more speaking of past tense or it, it has happened, perfect tense, Some people think it could refer to something specific happening in Jerusalem. But that term at last also means to the end, to the uttermost. So I think it's best to think of it as eschatological wrath. This is end time judgment. The reason reason it says has come, it's because it's already been pronounced upon them. There is a horrific judgment of God that will endure for all eternity. Revelation 20, 21 describes it as the lake of fire. 
This is not some obscure or strange teaching in the Bible. This is all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. We serve a God of wrath. We serve a God of judgment. And the wrath of God abides on those who reject the Son. That's what John 3 says. Romans 1.18 reminds us, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The, the wrath in Romans 1, it refers to God removing his grace in their life. It, it speaks of homosexuality and them receiving in their body the due penalty. And even that is a picture of the final wrath to come. Romans 2 says, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. For those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. And there are plenty of other passages that speak of the same wrath. Those who receive the message of the world, those who reject the message of Christ will have a fiery torment in eternal darkness. God is not blind to those who reject him. And unless you repent, that's what awaits you. But if you trust in Christ, if you surrender your life to him, if you call out to him as Lord, he will save you, not because you deserve it, but he'll do it on the basis of his mercy demonstrated on the cross and his victory demonstrated in his resurrection. For most of us, this message is not intended by God to be one that scares us. The intent is to encourage us to be faithful even though we see all the sin and the hatred and the hostility and the hindrances of the world. They will have their judgment. That was part of Jesus' message when he shared the story of Lazarus and the rich man. And the best way we can prepare ourselves to face the struggles and the battle against this world is to go back to the word of God. This is the good news. This is the gospel. Like Colossians says, the gospel that bears fruit in our hearts. So as we wrap up, I'd like you to turn with me to Psalm 73. Some of you might be familiar with it. This is a personal story of a man named Asaph. He wrote this psalm to describe a journey he went on spiritually. He describes an inner anguish because he looked around and all he saw around him was evil and wickedness and nobody else seemed to care and none of them seemed to be punished. Their life went well. Look at Psalm 73, verse one. He says, truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. That, that's his conclusion. He's gonna go back and tell us what happened, but that's, he starts with his conclusion. God is good to those who are pure, verse two. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He looked around and he saw people who didn't want to honor God and their life was going great. In our culture, we'd say it's Sunday morning, they don't go to church, they sleep in, they have nice breakfast. They don't have to pack the kids into the car and try and head out. 
That's a danger for all of us to fall into the envy of the wicked. How much easier would life be if I didn't follow Christ? We look around and we see the pleasures of the world. We see all the false promises and there's an allure there to the flesh. Asaph looks around, he sees unbelieving people and he said, their life is going great. Verse four, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. And they're not stricken like the rest of mankind. So you could look around and see those who sought integrity, maybe didn't have enough to eat, and those who were stealing and consuming or being um, uh, unrighteous with their use of money. Fat and sleek, healthy. He goes on in verses six through 10 to describe their arrogance, their blasphemy against God. Initially in Asaph, there was a, a, an unrighteous, uh, there was a righteous anger. They shouldn't be doing this, but over time that turned into a frustration. And then it became a temptation. These people, they're not suffering any consequences. What am I doing? Look at verse 11. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. So Asaph says, what's the point of being righteous? What's the point of fighting for purity? My life is hard. Their life is easy. At the same time, Asaph recognizes that his conscience and his God would not let him continue down that path. So we have verse 13. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. What am I doing this for? For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, if I would have said this out loud, if I would have lived this out, verse, 75, verse 15, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. And you have verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. How do, how, do I, how, do I, how do I put this together? What, what do I say when my kid says, Dad, the neighbors don't go to church, the neighbors are cheating on their income taxes, and look how good their life is going. It's a wearisome task. How do I answer this question? What's the point of my righteousness if life is only hard for me and easy for those who don't care? The key to this is verse 17. Here's what changed Asaph. This all seemed to me a wearisome task until, verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. That was the difference. Asaph went to church. Asaph heard the word of God and he discerned their end. I remembered where that life is headed. Verse 18, now here's the confident proclamation. Truly, God, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. That's all pointing to the wrath of God that will come upon the wicked. It will be a terror but for Asaph, he remembers that no matter how difficult his life is, God's always with him. 
and God guides him and leads him. Let's close with the final verses of this Psalm, verse 23 to the end. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, your word, your truth. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's an encouragement to know that this battle that we have against the world, against the allurements of the flesh is nothing new. Your saints have experienced it since the beginning. And so we're grateful for this message, this reminder of Asaph's journey. What he needed was to rely on your word, your counsel as you guided him. Help us do the same, Father. Help us continually turn back to your word and by it would you give us perseverance and energy. Would you remind us that what matters most in this life is not what the world says matters. It's what you're doing for the sake of your glory and for the sake of your kingdom. Help us persevere, help us endure. Help us be ready to face the hatred and the hostility and the hindrances that this world will have. We're grateful for the freedoms we have in our culture, in our life, in our families to speak the truth. But we recognize the opposition that will come from within in our sin and externally from the world. Give us wisdom to be respectful, to be pure, to be gentle, but give us courage to be clear and be faithful to the message of Jesus Christ. As we do that, Father, we pray you would work through us. And even if our life fails, even if our flesh and our heart gives out, would you be the strength of our heart and our portion forever? May we, like Asaph says at the end of this psalm, be able to tell of all your works. And even as our outer body is decaying day by day, we thank you that by your truth, by your word and through your spirit, our inner man is renewed day by day. We give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.